The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. Today's episode of the Physical Product Movement Podcast, I have the opportunity to speak with Juan Geraldo from Waku, a beverage brand behind a popular line of ready-to-drink herbal teas infused with prebiotics. Juan had a lot to share about starting a mission-driven brand and how you first need to satisfy customers' taste and functional requirements before you earn the right to enlist them on your brand's mission. Since he is from Ecuador, he wanted to make an impact in his home country by sourcing organic, high-quality, and pure ingredients coming directly from the farms of Ecuador. He talks about the challenges of setting up a co-manufacturer and a raw ingredient supply chain in another country. He walks us through the steps he took to get his first products to market and how he repositioned his products several times based directly on customer feedback. I think you'll see big things coming from these guys in the next few years. It's a great product in a great market. Uh, Juan was a fantastic guest. I think you'll learn a lot from him. Enjoy. Yeah. Hey, Juan, how you doing, man? Thanks for uh, jumping on the podcast with me. How are you doing today? Hey, Ken. My, my pleasure. It's uh, doing well. Sunny day in New York City, so I can't complain. Yeah. And, you, and you're in Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn, New York. Yep. Okay, cool. How long have you been there? Almost a year now. I actually moved to this. I'm originally from Ecuador, Ken, and I moved to the States about six years ago. And I spent five years in Boston, went to grad school then and the, there, and then I we started Waku there. But uh, with the pandemic, a few things changed in my life and in our business. So I, I reallocated to Brooklyn May 2021. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I th- you know, as we were talking about, I have a brother out in Brooklyn and I uh, keep meaning to go visit him. Um, uh, you know, I've visited New York many times, but, you know, I want to go get the real experience um, from someone who lives there. So that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely a place that you need to visit and live if you can. It's a wonderful city. Very cool. Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's just kick it off, man. Like, uh, we, we like to, um, start it off with a quote, you know, something that gets you out of bed or inspires you or has been impactful to you in some way. Do you have one in mind that you could share? Yeah, this is a quote from a businessman, a Brazilian businessman that I really admire. His name is George Paulo Lehman. And w- once he said, uh, it takes the same amount of energy to dream, to, to dream small as to dream big. So why wouldn't you dream big? Hmm. Um, and so yeah, that's, I like that. uh, 
yeah, that's kind of a motto that I live by in that our company has as a, as a core value is dream big. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that from the entrepreneur's uh, standpoint, because, you know, these businesses, I mean, it's, a, it's so much work to get off the ground. Um, and um, you, you might as well be working on something that, that can make a big impact and, you know, can have a much larger reward. You know, it, it really is. Uh, you know, I, I totally believe that quote that you're going to put in about the same amount of effort. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And as you said, it's uh, the amount of energy that uh, it takes to get a company off the ground is is ridiculous. So I think that it's not only like big ambitions or big impact, but it's what does big means to you, right? right. So it, it could be something that for other people is not as big as it is for you. So it's just picking the right thing, something that you're passionate about, that you believe in. And then you know that you're going to devote the next five to 10 years to it. So you better like it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that you know, I, I, I would think that most people are, you know, the person who maybe, you know, picks a small mission instead of, you know, like a big one. Um, it, you know, it might be a little bit of, of apprehension or, you know, um, you know, just self-consciousness. Hey, can I actually do this? You know, um, you know, can I pull this off? And, you know, what, what it kind of touches on one of my favorite things about entrepreneurship, which is, you know, it's the journey grows you as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Like you are forced to level up and to become greater and to become bigger. So it's almost like in the process, you become the type of person that can run a big business, right? Or a big opportunity. Oh, uh, have yeah. you noticed that at all in your life? Yeah, no, I was, I was about to say that that's, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, there is nothing else that I've been through in my life that has pushed me to improve myself as entrepreneurship has. So it's uh, the, the, uh, you know, the mental strength that you develop, resiliency, uh, communication skills, leadership skills, uh, even tolerance for pain, I would say. Uh, <laughs> yep. these, are all, these are all things that are making you level up, as you said. So yeah. uh, we've definitely felt it that way with Wakwin, and I felt it in the past with other, other uh, startups that I've had in the past is that that's why I love this journey so much because it's a personal development journey. Well, let's, let's hear just a little bit more about you. You said that you're from Ecuador, you know, maybe describe, you know, the household you grew up in and what you were like and what you were interested in and, and uh, what led you to, to come to the United States. Sure. So I was, I was born and raised in Quito, Ecuador. Uh, both of my parents are immigrants there from Colombia. So I spent half, uh, half of my time in Colombia and then, and then Ecuador while, while growing up. Very lucky and fortunate because I grew up in a very loving family. So my, my mom and my dad very supportive and I have two, two siblings. Uh, so very happy memories of, of where I grew up. I grew up in Quito, which is the capital city of, of Ecuador. And I saw entrepreneurship first glance since I was born because both of my parents are, are entrepreneurs. Um, and, and the family business is still up and running right now. Second generation, both my, both of my siblings, uh, run that business now it's in the education industry. So for us, uh, while growing up, it felt like the business was like another sibling at the table because <laughs> eating and my parents will always bring up the, the business discussion on the table. Right. So, uh, we, we, we learned first glance the, the amount of work ethic and commitment that you need in order to, uh, to grow a business. Um, and then 
I've been in and out of, of Ecuador since I finished high school. I'm fortunate to live in, in Europe. Then my undergrad came here for, for some time. And then it, for my grad school, uh, I always wanted to go to business school at Babson, which is a, a school in Boston that has a very good entrepreneurial program. Right. And yeah. the, the goal was always to come here, go to school as a stepping stone to then start a company in the U.S. And so... Uh, in 2016, I left uh, my job as the CEO of a, of a tech company in Ecuador, and my co-founder and I started discussing what can we do in order to launch a, a business in the U.S., but at the same time have a positive socioeconomic impact in Ecuador. That is really the the main driver for our business and, and the passion that brought us together, Nico and I. And um, we analyzed many different industries. We mm-hmm. ended up deciding on three characteristics that we wanted this business to have. One, regardless of whether we will operate the business overseas or in Ecuador, it needed to be a business that could allow us to have direct impact in the economy there. Second, it would be in an industry where Ecuador has a comparative advantage. And so that left us only agriculture and tourism because Ecuador does both of those industries very, very well. And third was a business from Ecuador to the world and not from the world to Ecuador um, and mainly because Ecuador is a, is a small country. And again, we have big dreams. And so we then picked agriculture, um, but we wanted a, a value-added business, not exporting commodities as, uh, you know, the past century of Ecuadorian businessmen have, have done. We are big exporters of fruits, uh, uh, grains, uh, herbs, everything that comes from the soil. We, we're, we're very rich as a country. And so we, we learned about the consumer goods industry. We used the MBA at Babson as a, as a platform of research and, and networking. And we learned about the trends in the industry. And one in particular got our attention that uh, is gut health. And so the more and more science and research is behind the importance of gut health in your overall performance, well-being, happiness. And when you look at the categories, all of them are being disrupted by new entrants positioning this function. But right. in beverage, there has only been one that uh, has sort of made a splash that is kombucha. And when we dug deeper in the research, we realized that kombucha has is facing some limitations in growth, mostly because of the acquired taste. And so right. we, could, we could bring to market a product with similar benefits, but in a category that has 92% of household penetration and that is beloved by pretty much all American consumers, which is ready to drink tea. And so uh, we're bringing to market uh, a prebiotic herbal tea that has zero added sugars and is brewed with only the finest natural ingredients that are sourced ethically from farmers in Ecuador. Um, And so fantastic product, really delicious. And we have a strong social impact program in Ecuador as well. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask you about that transition, right? You said you're running a tech company and then you decided to start a CPG brand and you've kind of outlined it, um, you know, the main reasons why, but I'm curious about some of the differences that you've noticed between running this type of business and then running a tech company. You know, what, what are the, the biggest ones? The main one that comes to mind right now is the obsession with consumers that you need to have in CPG. I mean, we, uh, I was running an, uh, a B2B uh, enterprise software services company. So our, our customers would be, you know, banks or big retail companies, 
usually businesses that run a lot of data that have a lot of information because we all of our services were around oracle databases um and then from when i left that job that was again mostly enterprise sales now we're consumer right and there is a component of b2b sales and relationships which i think uh i learned in my previous experiences but the consumer piece was new to us and that took a while uh, to learn and, and, and frankly i think that uh, consumer obsession and product in cpg are the single most important things uh well well you know moving your company from zero to one yeah yeah let's double click on that a little bit um so consumer obsession you know uh, i i think most companies would think okay you know we need to care about our customers you know like um that's an important component of our business. That's how we grow. You know, we need to make sure they love the product. Um, is there anything in particular that you, you feel like, you know, that, that you learned, um, you know, maybe the hard way or, you know, that really kind of brought that to your attention? I think that the thing we learned the hard way is that the most important thing is to listen to the market, Ken. Um, so as entrepreneurs, we usually bring concepts to market that we're in love with. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, for us early on was this idea of positioning a mission-driven brand in the U.S. of uh, a company that would be uh, impacting hundreds of farmers in, in South America. And we thought that that brand positioning could attract consumers. Mm-hmm. And what we learned was that uh, first and foremost, consumers care about test, taste and then what's in it for them. Right, so it's the function on the product that is bringing more people into our brand, and our our social impact message goes in third place. It's important; it builds loyalty, but it it doesn't drive trial. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was one of the things. Is look, I mean, the, the entrepreneurs that I admire the most that are you know growing faster than than the average uh, early stage company is because they are really tuning in with the market and understanding what resonates and what doesn't, and then tweaking product, branding, pricing, distribution, in order to get to that consumer where the product is resonating. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So so you, you said it goes third, right? Um, yeah. You know, in terms of the mission, um, just in terms of, you know, driving, um, you know, trial and getting people to just use your product. Um, so just to be clear, what are, what are the first ones? Is the first one taste? Is that what you said? The first one, the first one is taste. I mean, it's what consumers care the most, right? So people, it, it, your product can have all the benefits in the world as a, as a food and beverage brand, but if it, it doesn't taste good, uh, no one would buy it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the economy. We're proud to say that our products taste fantastic and we use only the, the best quality natural ingredients. Uh, and then it's function. Um, and and okay. so it's, uh, you know, the new generation consumers, they, they want a little more out of the, of the produce they, they buy. And so for us, uh, we add six grams of prebiotic fiber, which is 25% of the daily intake that American consumers are supposed to get. And most of them don't uh, get the minimum intake that they should. And so we provide 25% of that fiber uh, and besides that, we don't add any any sugars, which are usually causing inflammation. Um, and uh, in addition to that, we use a blend of anti-inflammatory herbs that are the ones that come from the Andes Mountains of Ecuador. And so all of our, our brand 
uh, positioning is around uh, gut health. Um, and that's the second one. Even though I would say, Ken, that uh, 60% of customers that are new to brand in our direct-to-consumer business mm-hmm. try Waku for the first time because they want more digestive support. Huh. So, uh, um, we so know the function is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why, why digestive support, right? Like, so you mentioned that you guys were looking at some trends, um, you know, when you were thinking about starting a business, you know, why did this one stick out to you? So, uh, it's just the, 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 the importance of it. So we, we, we dug deeper into the science and the research. And when you think about your gut health, uh, it's the place of your body where you have the most nervous terminations. Uh, so it's literally like a second brain. Um, and so when you don't, when you don't have, when your gut is not operating well, you start feeling it in many different areas of your body. So it, it can, this can be cognitive function. Uh, this can be mood, uh, obviously performance. Um, and so there is more and more research that just is, uh, is implying how the microbiome is important for your, your performance. Um, and that was what, what caught us, our, our attention. Yeah. I mean, obviously there, there's, there's plenty there, you know, um, uh, and I love, you know, sort of that priority. Um, in fact, you know, I'm looking at your website right now and you can always kind of tell, um, you know, the, what, what people care about based on like what you see on that sort of the, the top fold of the, yeah. <laughs> of the website. Yeah. And, um, and I have seen some CPG brands, um, and, and in particular, some that have really kind of struggled where they, they would actually lead with the mission. So I think they would make that same mistake that I think you guys made early on, you know, really kind of yeah. leading with the mission um, where you would see that on the, on the top fold, on the, on the homepage. Um, yeah. And, and it's been my experience uh, exactly as you explained it, right? First it's what's in it for me, right? Like it's yeah. got to taste good. It's got to be, you know, do something for me. And then, you know, it's like the mission can, can help to solidify it and give more confidence in, in the company and the sale. Um, yeah. And ultimately, I mean, you could still, I, I think you could, it doesn't mean that you have to limit the good that you do in the world because you, you prioritize it that way. In fact, if you can make more sales and get more people um, to try your product, then you can actually do more in terms of your mission. Is exactly. that the way you guys look at it? Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's a pragmatic way to look at it. I mean, you can... You can have all the best intentions in the world, but if your business doesn't get traction, then you will have no impact. Um, and so that, that's why it's so important that even if you are a mission-driven company, early on, you need to get your, your, you need to understand your consumer. You need to focus on the market first. And then as you continue to scale, uh, you'll have more bandwidth and resources to continue to improve your, your social impact strategy as well. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that social impact. Um, just a little bit, um, you know, like, so you could have started this business without a social mission at all. Right. Uh, and I, and I just kind of want to look at it like selfishly, right? Like what has, has having a mission, um, attached to your brand, what has that done uh, for your business? Have you felt a pull forward? Have you felt, um, you know, more support from the community or, you know, why don't you tell me, you know, what, what it's done for you and what other entrepreneurs who are thinking about maybe, maybe going down that route, what they can expect? That's, you know, that's a great question, Ken. I think two, two things come to mind right now. The first one is alignment with partners. And so usually when, uh, it, at, at least this has been the case for us, is having a social impact 
or a mission-driven brand uh, brings in a specific type of people. In, 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 and I'm talking advisors, investors, even suppliers, customers, consumers. So mm-hmm. it creates alignment with stakeholders. Um, and, and also it weeds out people that are not the right partners for us. The first one, uh, also employees, uh, by the way, um, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it, it's, really, it's really good to attract employees and like-minded people in that area. Uh, and the second one is very, I would say, personal and even um, very selfish, as you said early on, because the second one is having a bigger mission than just making money has made my co-founder and I keep going even in the darkest moments. Hmm. Um, and, and, this, and this was something that uh, a mentor of ours told us is when things get tough and they will always get tough when you're in the entrepreneurial journey, remember why you started. Um, and that why should give you the, the fire to keep pushing uh, even if things don't look good. And that's exactly, uh, that's exactly the case for us. Uh, that, that, that deep desire that we have to create a positive socioeconomic impact in Ecuador has been decisive for us in moments where, where we thought that things were not working out. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits. Um, you know, I can just hear the passion in your voice, you know, when you talk about your mission and you talk about your business and you talk about the people that you impact, you know, I, I think it, it, it just makes it so that uh, that passion, you know, kind of comes out, um, and which I think can help you in all areas of your business. Um, yeah, that is true. you know, this isn't just another beverage, you know, this is, this is a mission for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, looks like you guys are, are working on a crowdfunding uh, campaign um, that, that looks like it's going really well. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, why you decided to do that? And uh, I guess it's not crowdfunding, it's crowd equity. Is that right? Crowd equity. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you guys decide to go that route? Yeah. So we're, we're running uh, a crowd equity campaign in republic.co slash Waku. Um, and yes, we've, we've raised almost a hundred K there. And the thought process behind it was, uh, we've in the past couple of years we've focused our distribution direct to consumer, and so we have thousands of people in our email list, and we have uh, thousands of fans now of the brand. And so these are people who are buying from us frequently, and they love the brand. And we figured this could be a great way to give them an opportunity to invest in the company that they already love so much and love their products so much. That was the, the, the first thing. The second thing is that both my co-founder and I are, are international um, so uh, expats. And we wanted to give a friends, our friends from around the world also a chance to, to invest, people who are not accredited investors. Um, so, you know, our network is still late 20s, early 30s. There's not a lot of people who have more than $1 million in assets. And so uh, we figured if we could give them a chance to invest, you know, a thousand bucks, 500 bucks, uh, a, a lot of our friends would, would, uh, would invest from, from other countries. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, uh, I think it's fascinating how innovation in the U.S. works right now. I think Republic and the likes platforms are giving retail um, investors an opportunity to invest in private companies that were uh, these opportunities were only closed to to 
accredited investors and angel investors in the past and now is democratized. We can all invest in things that we like and that we, we think are going to be successful in the future. So I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, any Anything that you've learned uh, from doing the uh, crowd equity uh, campaign? You know, any tips that you could give to other people who might be thinking about doing it? Yeah, so I think it's very important. Uh, this may not be only for crowdfunding, but in general is the importance of creating a community around you and your and your company. Um, and so, you know, usually the, the people who have done well in these campaigns is just brands and companies who have, have built strong communities around them that support them. So uh, I think that that's really important. Um, the, you know, when you go through this process, you're, your financial statements need to be reviewed. So it's a step below audit, let's mm -hmm. say. And mm -hmm. so I really recommend uh, founders to, to get on top of their books since, since the beginning, because then when you're trying to do things like this, it takes a lot of time and effort to actually clean up all your books and, and get them ready for a review or an audit. Um, and, and I think that those two for now. And so how, how does this work? Do you, does that mean that you end up with a lot of different people on your cap table or are they lumped into, into, you know, like one single group or yeah. How, how does that actually work? They are lumped into one single, one single group. You're right. Yeah. So oh, okay. Republic actually uh, gets to your cap table and then um, it's only one, one, one uh, institution, the cap table and that's it. Okay. Um, well, let's uh, let's switch sub subjects a little bit. You know, I always want to know about the early days and how you were able to kind of set up your initial supply chain and get your initial product, you know, um, manufactured and made, and then and then uh, you know your your first sales, you know. And so let's go back to to the very beginning. You know, when when you and your business partner had this idea, and you knew that you wanted to to source this from Ecuador, obviously. You know, what are, what are some of the first steps that you took uh, in order to start? I'm glad you asked this because for us, the product is, is a lot more than a product that was created on a lab because the, the base of all of our products is a traditional recipe that we, that we actually grew up drinking that comes from the south of Ecuador. And so uh, it's very popular drinking Ecuador that is used every day, mainly because of the digestive benefits and great taste. And so mm -hmm. what we decided to do when we... Uh, when we figured we were going to launch this is let's find out where this tradition comes from. And so we basically ended up making a road trip from Quito, which is sort of the north of Ecuador to the south, the border with Peru, where this tradition comes from. And we stopped in 52 different farmers communities and tried 52 different recipes and learned all about this tradition. Um, and then we ended up partnering up with, with a farmer's community that was the most open, the most welcoming, and that their, their, their blend of herbs that is the base of this, of this product was the most delicious one. And so we learned the recipe and the ingredients from them, and we started sourcing all of the ingredients from them as well. And so then the, the next step was only to find a food scientist that could actually industrialize the recipe, let's say, uh, to produce it as, at scale. Uh, so okay, it's, it's yeah. a very particular story on how we did it. Okay. How did you find a food scientist? Then the food scientist, this is, uh, you know, how my dad, so uh, my dad in Ecuador, obviously we were doing all this in Ecuador. So uh, 
uh, a news article from a couple of young brothers that had started a, a beverage manufacturing company with an R&D lab. And he was like, oh, look, Juan, this is what I read this morning. You should, you should call them up. And uh, we called them and they are still our manufacturing partner today. Huh. Huh. And so when you called them, what were, what were you trying to, you know, what were you trying to accomplish? You're, you know, see if they could, they could uh, help industrialize your, your, your beverage or what were yeah, you going to ask them? I literally was trying to understand absolutely everything about the business. So I, okay. I was trying, yeah, I was trying to, so my questions were like, look, I, we want to sell these in the United States. Uh, we want it to be ready to drink and bottled. Uh, we have some sort of a recipe that, I mean, we can bring one of these farmers to your lab and, and for him to share what he does. And then we want to replicate all that uh, with less sugar, with a shelf, shelf life of 12 months. And so they, we just asked a ton of questions, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they were very helpful at that moment. Uh, they had experience manufacturing products that are exported to the U.S. So they had all the regulatory parts set up. Um, and, and that kicked off our, our commercial relationship. And it's been great. And were they a brand themselves? Did they have their own product? They do have their own brand. Um, okay. They, and, but they also manufacture for they, other people? They started co-packing just for us. I think okay. now they do have a few other customers, but at that moment, we were the first ones. Okay. I, I think that that's actually an important lesson, right? Um, the first thing is you just you just reached out to them, right? Like, what do you have to lose, right? Like, the the, the worst they can do is say, no, not interested, you know, don't call back or something like that. But it seemed like, uh, you know, you were able to to strike up a, a, a friendship with them and um, they, they've ended up becoming a really important partner to you. Um, are there any lessons that you, you learned through that experience um, in lining all that up? I mean, I think the biggest one, and I think that both my co-founder and I have experienced that before, but is don't be scared of not knowing uh, about something because you, you can learn by asking the right questions to, to the right people. And so uh, we, we weren't scared to say, look, like we, we really don't have experience. We would, we would love uh, you to guide us, like walk us through uh, what does it mean to have an industrialized recipe? What does it mean to have an FDA approved product? So like we, we were really humble, let's say. And so mm -hmm. I, we, we learned that, you know, being, being willing to be humble, being willing to, to accept that there are things that you don't know are the most important things to continue to develop on your journey as a businessman and entrepreneur. Right. And then, you know, the other thing I think is, is, you know, maybe somebody else might've been a little apprehensive about reaching out to uh, a potential competitor, right? Like these guys also had a, a, a brand, um, you know, it could, you could have looked at it as, as, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we, we compete against each other. Um, why would they help me? You know, how did you think about that when when you approached you know another another drink brand? Yeah, you're you're right. Um, but look, I mean, we uh, early on, you should talk to possible about your idea and don't be afraid that someone is gonna is gonna steal it from you. Because at the end of the day, ninety nine percent is execution and one percent is idea. So there's there's no value in the idea first, and then. Obviously, you want to protect yourself uh, when when you start sharing confidential information. So we shared uh, 
a lot of information without an NDA signed. But then as soon as we started talking about, you know, specific ingredients and, and quantities and all that, we did sign an NDA that protected both parties of confidential yeah. information that don't want to be shared. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, and then just um, in that, hey, this is a competitor, but they, they had everything set up already you know and they had experience um and so you know ending up partnering with them you know was a shortcut uh, to setting all this up yourself or, or trying to find somebody else you know and i and i think that other brands could could do that you know say you want uh, to start a protein bar company you know here in the U- united states you might actually consider reaching out to other protein bar companies to see if they could make your product you know yeah. um you know, in manufacturing too, you know, often people have, a, you know, additional capacity and, um, you know, the, they're looking at ways in which they can um, bring in additional revenue or put that capacity to use or, or things like that. So I think people are more open to it than, than you would probably think. Yeah, that is true. And we also, um, we knew that our, our main focus is the U.S. market, right? Their main focus is, is Ecuador now. They, they are expanding into other countries in, in South America, but... Uh, we knew from early on that it's even if they would want to penetrate the U.S. market, it's so hard to do it if you are not close to the consumer. And you, you need to be here in order to, to create a successful consumer brand in the U.S. You can't you cannot do it operating from overseas. So we, we it, it wasn't a we didn't have competing markets. Let's say. Okay. Yeah. So while while you know. You, you sold a similar product in, in like it's a beverage, right? Uh, uh, a, a bottled beverage. Um, you weren't actually competitors because you were in different markets. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So you guys uh, nailed the formula on the first, first try, right? And uh, it's been smooth sailing ever since, or uh, why don't you tell us about that experience? What did you learn? Uh, how did it go? Yeah, no, I, I wish, but uh, no, I think that, <laughs> The product now, the uh, the one that I just I, I just described, I think it's our fourth iteration in terms of uh, packaging, branding, and, and positioning. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we learned many things, but on on the, on the process, we've learned first to listen to the consumer to understand what are the key attributes that they are looking for. Um, we learned about distribution because. Remember, CPG is uh, you know half of the business is distribution, so the right channels. What are the right channels for our brand? Uh, what are the right distributors for our brand? And understanding uh, which ones can bring the most ROI at this stage of our of our venture, mm-hmm. uh, and all all of the challenges around supply chain and logistics, uh, how to scale manufacturing of you know products. Uh, that is a lot of planning, a lot of forecasting, because it, it cannot happen from one day to another. Right. I mean, especially in this, uh, this environment where supply crazy chains are world. Kind of all over yeah. the place. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a concrete example of something that um, may be surprising that a customer told you um, about the product and then, you know, how, how you guys uh, responded to that feedback? Yeah. So for, for example, in terms of, of positioning early on, we tried a uh, plant-based tonic. We were positioned as a plant-based tonic and then what we learned after we launched that that product was that consumers were um, 
confused on whether we the product had bubbles because of tonic water. They didn't know if it was flat or, or had bubbles. So that, that was creating a lot of confusion. And in consumer, I think it's very important to set the right expectations. So when people buy a plant-based tonic and they think it had bubbles and then they try and it's a, and it's a product without a carbonation, they are disappointed and it's a, it's a bad experience. They will never come back, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was one of the, of the specific things that I can remember right now that we launched it and then the market quickly told us like, no, this is, you need to clearly articulate what this is uh, because this is confusing for, for the consumer. Right. And I actually think your current uh, positioning, you know, as a prebiotic herbal tea, you know, I think that reaches just a much broader base of, of consumer, right? Like so many people, I, I think I read somewhere like tea is the most popular beverage in the world, second to water. Right. Yeah. Like some, something like that. Um, you know, and so, and so I think that, um, this is positioning that you had to come to, it sounds like, you know, you had to work your way towards your current positioning. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I think that the tea ready to drink tea category is massive in the U S so it's a little over $7 billion. And when you think about the category, Ken is, uh, all of the leading brands, so called the Snapples, the Arizonas, the Gold Peaks, the Pure Leaves, all of these brands are loaded with sugars, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up to, up to 45 grams, empty carbs, up to 150 calories and artificial ingredients. And so we think we bring a very different product to the category with zero added sugar, very low calorie, uh, only, only natural ingredients, but also we add the prebiotic fiber. So uh, to your point, this is a lot more mainstream that, uh, than the product that we had before. And as you said, it's a work in progress. I don't think this will be the last iteration, but I think we're getting close to it. Okay, great, great. Well, we're almost up on time here. Uh, I, I did want to make sure to, to touch on, um, you know, what's, what's coming up. It sounds like you guys are, are launching a new product or um, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, we're super excited because as, as the... The, the prebiotic herbal tea with prebiotic uh, uh, powers and zero added sugar is coming to market right now. This is brand new. We're calling it Waku 2.0 because we did a bunch of improvements on formulation, packaging, um, a messaging, and positioning. And so the main launch of this new line is on April 12th, and we are having a virtual launch party on April 15th that is open to the public. If anyone wants to join, information is, is on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, just super excited because uh, I think we did a terrific job on having uh, incredible taste, you know, sweet, but zero added sugar. We're sweetening with natural sweeteners such as monk fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the prebiotic fiber, again, a lot of people, most of Americans don't eat enough fiber during the, their day and we're going to provide 25% of the daily intake. Uh, so highly recommend everyone to listen, who is listening to this to try it out. You won't be disappointed. Yeah, and if uh, somebody's you know interested in trying that out, how, how, how do they do it? What's the best way to do it? Oh, yeah. So you can uh, go to our Amazon store. Uh, you just search Wakuti in the, in the search bar or www.leavewaku.com. Okay. Yeah, got it. Well, let's uh, let's quickly do the the quick fire round. I've got four questions for you, um, and then uh, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, 
what's one tool or resource that has helped you the most in your current uh, position? One tool or resource. I think that in our industry, the resource that has helped us the most is BevNet. It's a, it's, you know, a trade publication. They are covering all the, the trends on the industry and doing analysis on categories and, and product reviews. So I, I spend a lot of time learning about the industry there. I've got one of their magazines right here on my desk right now. Oh, so. there you go. <laughs> um, what is one book um, that you could recommend to the audience? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share one that I read at the end of last year and that we implemented in, in WACU and it's been very helpful. It's called Get a Grip and, uh, from Andy Wickman. And this book is about implementing a management system for uh, entrepreneurial companies called Entrepreneurial Operating System. So think about it as OKRs in steroids. Uh, it really helps you uh, get alignment and clarity throughout the organization. It's really helpful when you're starting to scale. Awesome. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would give your 21-year-old self? Uh, dream bigger. <laughs> Goes to your, your early quote. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that, you know, sometimes at your 21-year-old, uh, self, you haven't had the opportunity to explore the world, to read many, many books and all that. But when you start opening up to the world uh, and read more and understand how there are so many people around the world that are self-made, uh, that have conquered everything that they wanted just through discipline and commitment, that they are not extraordinary. They just have really committed to a goal and had the discipline to execute on the plan. Uh, you can you can you can achieve whatever you set out to to uh, to achieve. Okay, I love it. And uh, last, uh, who is uh, one person um, in your field? Maybe another entrepreneur, another brand uh, that you keep an eye on um, that you would love to take to lunch. You know, it's uh, this 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 Brazilian uh, businessman that I told you. Uh, he. He's mostly a, a, a private equity guy, but they are the, the group behind AB InBev and Kraft Heinz. So it's, uh, they are okay. behind, you know, consumer goods companies, big ones. But he is the, the, the most inspiring person that I've, uh, that I've learned about. He's a Brazilian billionaire and the, the amount of impact he has had in Brazil is, is incredible. Um, uh, and so I think him is the uh, George Paulo Lema is his name. And that's the, the, the person that inspires me the most. Okay. Well, awesome. Um, you know, I, as we wrap up here, you know, I just wanted to say, I mean, I, I think this has been a fantastic uh, interview, tons of value for other entrepreneurs. Um, is there um, any, any parting words for other entrepreneurs out there that are kind of in the grind right now? Um, you know, they're working through their business, you know, what would you say to them? You know, we, we, we like to say with, with Nico is uh, always move forward is a concept where no matter what challenge you're facing right now, there is always a solution. If you keep, if you keep grinding, if you keep uh, trying to find a way. And so I, you know, some of, some of the listeners might, might be going through, very challenging times on their business. Just remember there is always a solution. Just keep moving forward. Okay. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. 
Hey, I appreciate it, Juan. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Appreciate it. And this has been this has been great. Thank you so much for the for the invite. All right, awesome. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Hey everyone, my name is Taylor Howe and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.